0: Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment
1: podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life.
0: Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code COLBYPODCAST to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Podcast which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one. So think ahead. Thanks for listening. Greetings and salutations listeners. Welcome to cycling in alignment. I believe this is episode number 93, which means we're almost 100 years old. This conversation is with Dr. Kevin Sprouse. We actually recorded this podcast for his channel, which is called The Podium, and he's already released it, but I'm going to cheat a little bit and put it on my channel as well, because I think my audience will benefit from our discussion. Kevin's a doctor. He's worked for the Slipstream organization for probably a decade, including being the team doctor for the Most Modern Incarnation, which is, of course, Team EF Education EasyPost. Kevin's also done some bike fitting, and he is a runner and he's a way faster runner than I am, which isn't really saying much because I'm pretty much a bike racer trying to be a runner, but I do like running from time to time, even when no one is chasing me. In any case, I hope you enjoy our discussion. We get into some good stuff. As always, ride fast and ride consciously. Thanks for listening.
2: Colby Pierce, thanks for uh, coming to join me on the podium here. We've, we've been uh, been looking forward to this one and get a lot of questions about bike fit, biomechanics. And as you know, you are my go-to bike fit person, have been for years. So I'm thrilled to have you on. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I'm,
1: I'm really grateful to be here. Hopefully I can answer all those uh, mysterious questions.
2: I'll yeah, do my best. That's great. Cool. Thank you. Um, before we get into the bike fit part of it, uh, because your knowledge and your experience is really pretty, pretty wide. Um, and I'd love to introduce people to you and kind of how you got to where you are. So can you tell us a little bit starting off with, with your entry into cycling and your career as a, as a professional cyclist? Um, some of the things that you accomplished through the years, how'd you get into it?
1: Sure. Um, I'll, I'll try and keep it to the cliff notes version. Cause I've been in the sport a long time. Bike racing is pretty much my whole life. Um, I, I've at times called myself the world's biggest bike dork, which is a lofty claim. So anyway, whatever
2: that's worth, but I, I raced a legitimate stake at that. Like yeah. maybe not the one, but you're up there, which I I'm, love. I'm, okay, cool. <laughs>
1: I, uh, did my first bike race when i was 15 i i talked my stepmom into an entry level racing bike because i needed a bike to get to school in middle school and uh, i talked her into an entry level bike cuz i thought it looked cool and then i had grown up alpine skiing and what i realized about this this road bike is that i could just go really fast so i ended up doing these like kind of kid version nighttime criteriums like zooming around my neighborhood going 25 miles an hour and 30 miles an hour down hills and stuff And I love the speed. Like it's really easy to go fast on a road bike, you know, when you kind of get the thing going. So that was my first sign. And then a friend of mine did a a kid's race called the Red Zinger Mini Classic, which was based on the old Coors Classic or Red Zinger Classic stage race in Colorado. And I had seen that race. Actually, the North Boulder Park circuit race is just seven blocks down the road from my house. So I'd seen the race and been there and seen all the colors and the cars and the pros and everything, but I really had no idea what it was about. And then a friend of mine entered the kids version of that race, which was targeted for, for, uh, 10 to 15 year olds. And I saw him race one summer and said, that looks really cool. I'm going to do that next summer. So I, you know, air quotes trained for that for the next year, which meant getting lost and bonking and getting chased by dogs for most of the spring. And then I showed up to the first day of the Red Zinger, uh, race, the mini classic and did my first criterium, and nothing special happened in terms of results. Uh, I think I finished in the middle of the group and probably never even broke away or anything, but I felt like I got struck by lightning. It was like, this is it. I'm a bike racer. I found my calling. So did all the things, uh, wasn't amazingly good at bike racing for a long time. Took a lot of lumps, uh, but was definitely high on the perseverance score. Just kind of kept plugging along. Uh, finally won a few medals at the national level in time trial and started to win some races on the track. Also raced mountain bike and cyclocross, was terrible at cyclocross, like dreadfully bad. Uh, Jonathan Vodders and I, I think we're last and second to last at Colorado State cyclocross championships like two or three years in a row. We All right,
2: so who was last and who was second to last?
1: Uh, Oh man, you're testing my memory now. I don't know. I, I might have beaten him in that, but. Let's go with that. Yeah, we'll go with that. I mean, All literally right. he showed up on a mountain bike with like tennis shoes and flat pedals. And I was, I had a cyclocross bike, so my bike probably weighed 12 pounds less than his. So that was the advantage, but both of us were just like dragging our bikes up hills and stuff it was pretty com- pretty good comedy. So then eventually I made it to the point where I could, um, call myself a pro, which is a relative term that meant I had a pro license. It didn't mean I was actually making a living racing my bike. There were only a few seasons where I managed to do that. So whatever that's all worth, uh. But I did race as a six day pro for a number of years in Europe, uh, I raced as a, I was officially a professional for about 15 years uh, in the US domestically, mostly on the road, I had my best success on the track, I did make it to the 2004 Olympic Games, as part of the US team for the points race, raced in eight world championships, raced on five continents, did a whole bunch of stage races, had a lot of great adventures, learned a lot of things, uh, ate a lot of dirt, you know, <laughs> um, crashing in gutters and whatnot, so... Yeah. And then I decided to become a bike fitter in around, I think it was 2012. I'd have to look at my calendar to be hundred percent sure. So coming up on a decade, I trained with Steve Hogg in Australia yeah. and he's a, a fit, well-known uh, person in the fit world, pretty eccentric guy, uh, definitely an out of the box thinker. Yeah. And I really appreciate that about him. He's, he's typical Australian. You know, Australians are very direct, like they will they will look you in the eye and tell you what you're doing wrong no problem and steve even by australian standards is even more direct so um if there's a lot it. of
2: like it's not it's, it's not confrontational it's just no no yeah, yeah like
1: like check your ego at the door here's what's happening deal with it yeah and i think that's why we got along because i i really appreciate that style of communication um brutal honesty did, did bike so.
2: fitting no i'm sorry did, did bike fitting um appeal to you because of all the time on the track and time trialing. And just I mean, you really gotta get in the weeds of of fit Mm -hmm. and aerodynamics when you're when you're pushing the performance in those disciplines.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was part of it. You know, I was an early student of the sport. I read, you know, Greg Lamont's book and Bernard book and all the books I could get that describe things um about training and fitting and and I dorked out on my own fitting quite a bit. And I like to think of bike fitting uh, one of the one of the parameters for fit is a spectrum, and I call it the the princess spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, we have what where I was for many years, which is really a pretty fundamentally uh, physically very fragile rider. That is, if I made a tiny change to my position, a little change in saddle height, a little change in Q factor or foot separation distance, I could have uh, you know pains or injuries or at least twinges in my fascial system or tendon tendons somewhere in my knee really quickly. And that told me I was a very fragile rider that also, it was a blessing in a way because it tuned me into the subtle differences in fit and how they impact your performance. So I became interested in that at a very young point in my career, a very early part of my career, and I started to do things like take video of myself riding on the rollers and looking at my saddle height and looking at the stability of my hips, um, and trying to figure out what was going on, try to not just feel uh, because what I've just dis- what I've learned, one of the things I've learned as a an athlete internally is that our sensations um, that we register when we're riding can really actually, unfortunately, lead us quite astray in our own self diagnosis and bike fit. Sorry, I know I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not supposed to use the word diagnose. But our own self assessment will say um, they can they can lead us to insight and and your experience is always accurate. I'm not saying you shouldn't believe your own body, like ultimately you as an athlete you know your body better than anyone yeah. however sometimes when we chase those sensations they can sort of lead us in this negative wormhole of the wrong direction
2: right um, I, it's just I, sort I, of a, not always accurate they're valid but they're not always accurate and that's right, where what we yeah, yeah we and i've been victim of this too with bike fitting and other things um, mm. you know you, you think you know what's going on and if you've got a little bit of knowledge you're even more kind of hold into that sensation that, yeah, yeah, I've, I've got this figured out and you could just be taking steps in the wrong direction.
1: So true. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to say it. I love that. Sorry. I interrupted you, but no, no, that's, that was, that was my process. And I think that's part of why I, I dorked out on all that and tried to solve my own equation. And, you know, there's a saying, uh, in the, we'll say shamanic world or plant medicine world, uh, the wounded healer makes the be- the wounded Shaman makes the best healer, right? And and you could apply that to so many other professions, right? Um, Good psychologists are people who have struggled in that area of their own life, and hopefully they've mastered it. And then they come and they want to take that healing to other people. So this is kind of how I view from a very large lens. This is how I view a little bit of my own trials and tribulations in the world of bike fit, my own disasters. I did everything. I mean, Jonathan and I did all kinds of crazy experiments. He went through a period where he decided his lower back was one of his rate limiting factors. So he had a bike built with a super steep C tube angle. I mean, this is way ahead of its time. You know, this is probably early nineties. Hmm. No one was doing this. You know, everyone was riding around on a 73 and a half or 73 degree C tube angle. And they just took it as gospel. And I should clarify, I'm pretty sure Alexi Graywall was the first person to kind of come up with this plan. And JV was like, I'm doing this too. And he slammed his saddle forward and did this. And then I had Leonard Zinn build me a bike with a really steep steep C tube angle and tried it and didn't really do wonders for me. It also changed your weight balance on the bike and had all these implications for handling that we didn't think about until we went around our first corner. Yeah. And then, you know, then there was the era of Steve Bauer, if you remember that Rube bike he built with the opposite, where he built this super, super slack C tube angle. I think it was 67 degrees or thereabouts. I mean. And he had to build several bikes in between to get him to transition. Yeah, wow. The idea of him to get better power, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So-, so And
2: that type of stuff, like you said, the experimentation is what leads to a place, like in, unless you try the extremes, you can't, the pendulum can't find the middle, right? Yes. So you, you've got to play around with the the edges and then figure out how that impacts the body, how that impacts different individuals and then start to bring it together to kind of an overarching theme is not the right word, but an overarching understanding of how things work from, Mm -hmm. you know, from a all the way to Z and figure out then when you're making a change on somebody's fit, I would imagine you're much more informed as to the the direction you're moving because you've seen the far end of the spectrum as opposed to just moving a millimeter here and there and kind of seeing how they feel.
1: Yeah, there's, um, This makes me think of a a slide that was presented in my recent um, course at the Czech Institute. I just came back from California and it was uh, IMS level four, that's integrated movement specialist level four. And it's all about the head, neck and shoulder. But the slide that the teacher put on the board was one of the second simplicity, right? And the concept is as you learn um, all the things, you begin to learn about a topic, bike fitting or training or whatever, nutrition you initially see things very simplistically, right? It's like, okay, how high should the shell, how high should the saddle be? How far back should it be? How far away should my bars be? That's pretty much all there is to bike fitting. Right. But then you learn more and more. You see all the nuance. Oh, ah, right. Now I understand that the shape of the saddle, the base and the padding and this nose angle all impact pelvic rotation, which then impacts the, position of the spine in space, because as the pelvis rotates more anterior or forward, you tip the pelvis forward. A lot of riders will sit with a more extended spine and therefore their reach artificially becomes shorter, we'll say, because their spine is now extended. So then we have to extend their reach. We change the shape of the saddle. So you start to see how, when we change one thing in bike fitting, it really is like a spider web and it impacts almost everything. It's just a question of how the impact plays out. Um, and so that's the the complexity part of the curve. Is you start to see how complex things are. Then, when you begin to really master a topic, there comes a second simplicity, which is all right. I know all these things. I've seen all the outcomes. I've done all the experiments with weird seat angles and cleat positions, all the way forward and all the way back, and footbeds and no footbeds, and da 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 da, and all the different saddles. And I look at this rider, and they come to me with the same they're lost. They're just on the beginning of the complexity and they begin to understand what they don't know, right? Or another way to think about it is they're somewhere healthily into the Dunning-Kruger curve, right? They're realizing how much they don't know and they're just lost. And that's where hopefully my wisdom or experience can come in and say, okay, I've seen this, I've seen this, I've seen this. This is where, and and you just see the solution and it's a simple solution. It's, nope, we just need to go down eight millimeters, but you have to have explored those envelopes. Uh, or push the edges, we'll say, as you said, many times to get to the point where you can hopefully apply that second simplicity and have it be accurate.
2: Yeah, well, you've got to know all the, not all, but you've got to have some experience with a multitude of possibilities for the answer Mm -hmm. to be able to quickly get rid of the ones that are non-starters, right? And that's where the second simplicity comes in. You've seen all these other things and you know the hundred ways you can go but you know, 95 of them in this situation aren't going to work. So you're able to say, okay, let's, yeah. this is perhaps a, perhaps a complex problem with potentially complex interventions, uh, but experience allows you to say, but we're going to narrow it. We're going to make it as simple as we can and, yeah. and move this. Solution. And I think that's a, I, I've never actually heard it put that way as the the second simplicity. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a, I really appreciate the term. I, I see it in medicine two and you know they say you never in medicine you never feel as ill prepared as about the second year in practice the first year you come out you know i i'd done a a good residency i was chief resident everybody patting you on the back saying no you're great at this you go through fellowship and again everybody's like oh man what a great fellow you've done a fantastic job with this you get out and you think you just know it all and after about six to 12 months of seeing (laughs) stuff constantly getting stumped. You're like, ah, actually, I don't know anything. I mean, what have I been through? And so then it's this process of building that back up through experience. You've got the book yeah. knowledge, but then the experience, mm-hmm. um, allows you to kind of reach that point, which I won't say I've reached in medicine. Just the, the concept is a good one. I, I don't think you ever attain that, but you move toward it, right? Yes. Uh, to where maybe you're presented with a solution or a, a problem that has a hundred potential solutions, and first time out of practice um, you know, there's 90 uh, mm-hmm. of those potentials that I investigate and I'm running around in my head yep. and you know, maybe I've, maybe I've narrowed that down to 40 or 50 now and one day I'll get to the five where it's I can five. Just, Yeah, here it is. But I, I love that. That's a, that's a really cool mm-hmm. way to think. about. It.
1: So you just described the Dunning-Kruger curve perfectly. Um, and I agree with you. You know, it's a sign that you're, you're humble and smart enough to see that you're never quite on the other side of that curve. You don't trust it, right? Like you've never arrived. I think of it like a staircase it's like, or paddle where you just keep getting smacked. Right. And every time you get smacked, you're going up the vertical component of the stair. And then you have an easy part where you're like, yeah, okay, I got this under control. I know what's going on. And then as soon as you think that whack! you just get smacked again with another gun and crew, uh, ping pong paddle. It's, it's like, I literally can picture it in my head with a. And you know, as you said, um, I'm glad you brought that parallel to medicine because I was going to make that exact comparison. I mean, I think it applies to any field of knowledge where it really is truly complex. And ultimately our job, I'm sure you feel this way too, is, as you said, to distill, right? Because you you have a client walk through your door and you have you have so many tools in your toolbox. That's the goal is to have access to every tool. But the simplicity, the second simplicity is to know which tool to take out at the right moment. And we're only going to take out five or eight. And we're going to try them to see if we can, um, one thing Paul check is clear to say in our work, uh, and especially in particularly with holistic coaching is we don't heal people. We really make space when you think about it to allow healing to occur, Mm, which is a different concept, right? I mean, I can't heal someone they're healing themselves. Their, their body has the power to heal themselves. Sorry, this is pretty obtuse, but I mean, you could take the same Concept and apply it to bike fitting. It's like, get out of the way, look mm-hmm. at the body with a soft focus. What do you see, right? Let the wisdom of the body come out. How does this person want to ride a bike? Which yeah. is, again, pretty obtuse um, if people were yeah. expecting conversation
2: about saddle or- Right, right. And we may get a, we'll get a little bit more to the specifics, but I think this is so important because I mean, I had actually more than one professor in medical school that taught us that the job of the physician isn't necessarily to heal it's to move the patient toward healing. So even with antibiotics, you change your mindset. It's not that the antibiotics are just killing the disease process, the bacteria. It's mm-hmm. think of it more as it's lowering it back down to a point where the body can take over and do its thing, right? Yes. It's just bringing things back, back into a place where the body can function. And even though that was more of a framework to think about it in, as opposed to one that you can kind of, prove with any study or whatever else. I always found that really compelling to say mm-hmm. I, our goal in, in medicine, um, which, which, bleeds into biomechanics and, and has some overlap with bike fit for sure. Um, the goal is really to, to set the person up to succeed in what it is they want to do based on their own idiosyncrasies, both mm-hmm. biomechanical, physiologic, uh, psychological, all those things. Yep. yep. So. This this is kind of a good transition because one of the things I wanted to get into with you first and foremost is when you have somebody walk in to get a bike fit and you're just meeting them, I'm curious whether your uh, kind of initial evaluation is on the bike or do you take some time away from that and kind of get to see how mm. they move, what they're working with?
1: Mm. Um. Yeah. Great question. I definitely look at riders off the bike. Uh, I look at standing posture. I look at different movement screens. It's sort of a, an amalgam of different stuff.
2: Uh,
1: at this point I use some gray cook functional movement screen, Mm -hmm. um, bits, and I use some of Paul's methods as well, but I also really, it's, it's the same conversation we were just having in a sense, like I'm observing the client when they walk through the door, and I'm trying to observe their postural habits, the breathing habits, uh, the pattern of vision, their eyes, are they looking at me directly, or are their eyes sort of wandering while they're talking? Uh, looking at the posture of their feet. Right. And and you're just uh there's a balance there. It's tricky. Um, I often have this conversation with my wife because what we're doing is really trying to both use the left brain and check off our our list of things that we notice, our observing list, our our linear mind. But I'm also feeling, which is more right brain, I'm feeling what's happening with the client, where are their limits. And I'm trying to feel the feeling comes into the distillation of what tools are going to be effective and actually move the needle for them versus what's just going to be an hour of fluff. Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, to draw back to the comment about my wife, you know women have i think it's about 50 percent more fibers in their corpus callosum which is this p- part of the brain that bridges left and right hemisphere and so you know men have less of those fibers because ostensibly we are uh have been evolved to be hunters where we have this myopic focus where we kill the deer <clears throat> or whatever and yeah. women are kind of evolved we'll say evolved engineered without getting down that rabbit hole of to have a, a more overarching view of the tribe and the harmony of the tribe and potential threats and weather and, you know, the food storage and how the, ch- where the, the children are about to run off a cliff and those types of things.
2: Yeah. The and maternal so, eyes the back of the head.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so when we, um, but when I'm, when I'm encountering a new client for the first time, I'm really hopefully tapping into some of that ability to use both sides of the brain at once and be integrated. And so I'm, I'm do quite a bit of off the bike assessment. Uh, I put them through some primal pattern movements with body weight. So mm-hmm. in Paul's system, there are six primal movement patterns. Those are a squat, a lunge, a hip hinge or deadlift, a push, a pull and a twist. And the culmination of those are gait. So he uses those movement archetypes to reduce, um, any sport, you know, swinging a tennis racket, uh, swimming triathlon, you know, different disciplines of triathlon cycling into those archetypes so that we can understand how the athlete moves in those patterns. And you can observe whether they have what he would call primal standard, meaning do you have mastery of a movement in under body weight? And if you have mastery of that movement, meaning you can do it with good balance. A lunge is a great example. You know, are you, are you stable on the, the posting leg? Um, when you sweep the other leg, is it fluid? Is the movement coordinated or are you, is the balance wobbly? Is the ankle struggling to find balances? Are the hips dumping, etc.? All those little things you can observe
2: what's and happening and with the one for cycling too. I mean, they all are, right? They, they all are,
1: but the hip hinge and lunge are the most applicable yeah. to cycling. Cycling is really statically uh, a hinge at the hips and then a series of lunges. That's fundamentally what it is, right? Yeah. yeah. I definitely look at those two. Then I, I do some other things to look at core control. Um, I find a, this is the thing about cycling. That's such a curiosity. Cycling is a sport that requires lower limb, a high level of lower limb conditioning, a prime mover muscles in the sagittal plane, right? I'll translate this into English for a moment, just so everybody's on the same page, but it down regulates stability of the ankle and foot. It down regulates stability of the core. It causes challenge with the pelvic floor and it disconnects the system of the spinal engine, which is rotation. So what does all that mean? Bunch of big words, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so prime movers in the sagittal plane. What does that mean? It means that we move only in the the sagittal plane is the plane of movement when you run or walk, right? And the prime movers on that plane are glutes, quads, hamstrings, and calves for the lower, for the leg. Yeah. Right with the lower limb, we'll say
2: front to back. If you were to drop a a plate of glass through a person, such that it went through their nose and their spine, right, yep. the front of the chest, back of the chest, yep, um, right on that that mm-hmm. line sat- there. That, that line,
1: place. yeah, parallel to that line, right, exactly. And and so, but the problem is that since we're using a rigid lever at the bottom of that chain meaning specifically a cycling shoe with a stiffness factor of 11 out of 10 or whatever they put on the bottom of the soles these days. Mm-hmm. I consider this type of lever to be fundamentally, it's a prosthetic device and all prosthetic devices weaken the body, right? Easy example. Let's pretend you, uh, for a thought experiment, let's, let's imagine you get no minor fender bender, you get whiplash, go to the doctor. He says, oh man, you need to wear a neck brace for six weeks. So you wear your neck brace. And you take it off. Are your neck muscles weaker or stronger afterwards? They're, they're weaker,
2: right? They're weaker. In fact, in fact, where I did residency, there was a guy who came in to the hospital every day, sometimes twice to the emergency room, lovable guy who had mm-hmm. been neck collar for years before I got there and probably still wearing one. And if you took it off, his, his head, just wow. fell the side. Like Couldn't a baby, like yeah. a baby. Yeah. And obviously he had, he had some psychiatric issues and all as pleasant as it could be. He'd come in for a sandwich, he'd sign into the ER, take an ambulance to get a sandwich at lunchtime. Um, But what you describe is, is not just a thought experiment. I can think of someone in particular (laughs) who did just this and you could see just the, the terrible downstream effect from it. Yeah. That's,
1: that's highly problematic. And we just, you know, like I said, uh, head, neck and shoulder was the topic of my last class and we studied Atlas subluxations and. I can only Mm. imagine, you know, as it turns out the position of the Atlas, which is basically your first vertebra just below your skull. It's like a donut shape, crudely speaking, just about every nerve in the body passes through that hole. So when that thing's out of whack, all kinds of weird stuff happens, right? So, uh, anyway,
2: so, sorry, I derailed you. We were talking about any prosthetic being a winning, uh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. So, so we, we put
1: our foot in this carbon fiber flipper right is what i call it our cycling shoes and sometimes we even have an orthotic in there with a rigid arch you know people want everything to be uncompromising and I, and again this is the the wounded uh cyclist makes the best teacher later on down the road to to paraphrase because i rode in bonds for many years in fact i'm still riding in them and for many years i rode in a carbon fiber footbed that is completely unyielding with this massive arch and this heel's cup and you know support under all the things and what that does is it weakens your foot and ankle. So every time we ride our bikes in cycling shoes, we are people like to use the word strong because we throw that word around as vernacular and cycling. that guy's so strong. She's so strong. I hate to say it, but that's really a misnomer. Um, really, cyclists aren't strong. They're durable, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's what cycling is. It's a sport of repeatability and durability, right? Thousands of repetitions. So, okay, so so we're durable. We can use the word strong just for For the sake of discussion. So a rider makes their legs stronger, we'll say, in that sagittal plane, the men specifically the muscles of the prime movers, but below that point, around the ankle and foot, all the muscles that draw up the arch, all the muscles that stabilize the foot under load, um, keep it from excessively pronating or supinating. The foot is locked in the shoe, and it's really the more rigid that system is, the less it's allowed to pronate and supinate, which are natural functions of gait, which is the most primal form of movement we have and the most one of the most significant for sure if not arguably the most significant uh, it's our entire survival mechanism and strategy um is based on gait and the fact that we evolved to go from quadruped to biped so we cut off that part of it right so so cycling what i'm saying is every time you ride your bike you create a further delta in the strength of those systems and just like any chain the weak link is the one that breaks So when I put people into a lunge and I ask them to do it barefoot, it's very common for me to see cyclists with really unstable feet and ankles. And I mean, Kevin, you'll know this, like this, I I like to draw this into a conversation of a bigger than the sphere of sport and talk about global health, holistic health, long-term health, health span, not just lifespan, but health span. So how does grandma die? How does grandpa die frequently? They're cruising out in the morning to get their paper. They trip on a step. They don't have the stability in the foot ankle complex to keep them on balance. They're lacking the reactivity of the feet to, to catch themselves. And then they fall. And then if their bone density is low, they break a hip. They end up in the hospital, they get pneumonia or MRSA or whatever. And then it's boom, down from there, right? Falls, falls are a big
2: cause. They're in huge. All, yeah. they're huge, I mean, it falls under accidents when we look at, uh, the, the major causes of death. And, uh, for, for a presentation I was giving a week ago, I had pulled up the, the top 10 causes of death and I believe accidents were number three. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see you've got heart disease, cancer, yep. accidents, yep. right? Yeah. And the I'd say, I don't know how it breaks down, but a large portion, if not the majority of those are accidents in elderly like that, where there's not the resilience to bounce back from it. Sure, you've got your car wrecks and stuff like that, but a lot of them are going to be what you just described. And because you create some of these inherent weaknesses, um, and we're familiar with them in somebody who's sedentary, right? Well, sure, you sit in a chair all day and whatever, you're going to create weaknesses. You don't think somebody who's riding their bike 8, 10, 12, 20 hours a week is also creating potentially or, or, certainly detrimental weaknesses down chain that can impact their and lifespan, but it happens.
1: This is the contradiction of cycling, right? It's, yeah. um, it's a U shaped curve is how I think about it. So if you're completely sedentary and you are overweight or have uh, metabolic disorders or, or whatever your health challenges are, and you're doing nothing and you get on a bike, your health will improve. You, you will gain health, right? You'll, you'll start it. to condition your muscles. You'll, you'll increase your cardiovascular the health of your cardiovascular system, right? You'll start to, um, sweat, which will help your body rid itself of toxins. There's all these benefits that will happen, right? You, you start to regulate your hormonal cycles better your cortisol levels more effectively through exercise, all the benefits of exercise. Like the data is overwhelming that exercise is better than not exercising. So I don't want to demonize cycling. However, if we only ride our bikes and we do it a ton and we don't offset the deficiencies that we gain from lots of cycling, it can ultimately actually lead to pretty big imbalances. And I see that in the fit studio all the time because cycling is a sport that demands an unusual degree of, of symmetry in us and no human. I have yet to see a symmetrical human walk through my door, right? I've had some amazing athletes walk through my door. Um, Spoiler alert. Most of my absolute rock star athletes who are super functional are women not men. Yeah. yeah Most are more women. Yeah. yeah, And, but, mo, but even those women, you know, you pick out tiny asymmetries and it's like, okay. And, and that's not, that's not my goal is to sniff those out and pick on them. And it's not our goal to make someone, we don't call someone perfect when they are, you know, perfectly symmetrical. We're, we're, it's a standard to strive towards and work towards. And we use our crystal ball to say, okay, what, what could cause problems down the road? And, unfortunately cycling, you know, get to the other side of that curve. You ride your bike a lot and you go downhill because we have weak feet and ankles, weak core potentially. And then the other part is the lack of rotation, right? So when you walk or run, there is a contralateral rotation that happens that activates the, we'll call it the spinal engine. So what does that mean? When you step forward with the right foot or right leg running or walking, the left arm comes forward. And this creates a a tension through the fascial spring, we'll call it, um, the line of fascial tension that travels diagonally across the torso. And that spring has an energy that winds. So when a a runner is really efficient, it's almost like they're winding and unwinding a spring. And that's what allows them to move down the road, right? And I'll call you out here, Kevin. We went for a run in Italy at the Giro Mm -hmm. in 2014 and this is a great moment because you're like, yeah, man, let's go for a run. This is like what you do when you're at a grand tour as a staff member, like every two or three days, you know, two or three, two out of every three days, you get up really early and go for a run. And then the other day you have to sleep in because you smoke because those things are just,
2: um, Absolutely. no one tells you this. We roomed a lot together at, uh, we roomed, at, yeah. a number yeah. of these. Things. So yeah, we were, we were running partners a few times.
1: So we went for a run. This is, I got to tell the story and we, we like going and I'm like, oh, cool. I'm keeping up with Kevin because I know you're a big runner. And also Kevin, like, no, like you have legs that are probably nine inches longer than mine. So you got some stride length advantage, but I remember running going, okay, I'm, this is cool. I'm, I'm keeping up with Kevin. And after about 20 minutes, you were like, okay, well, my warm-up's done now. I'm going to actually run. <laughs> and then you just went Whoosh! <laughs> and within one K you were like, I couldn't even see you anymore. I was like, oh, that's what a real runner can do. I'm still a bike racer. This is, this is funny.
2: H- had we been on bikes, it, it, I wouldn't have even kept up on your warm up. So sometimes <laughs> I had to just flex a little bit. I used to actually love to do that to Robbie Hunter. Um, yeah. Robbie was, was known as like the angriest man in cycling. I love, I love Robbie, but the, he's got a <laughs> temper, right? Robbie's got um, a temper. We'd go out running and I'd just kind of slowly, slowly bring up the pace until he couldn't talk anymore. And then I'd just take off. And he he'd just him. behind me. And, yeah. Half wheel him was, to death and then drop him. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you're right. And if you've ever seen you're probably like me. If I go we've got a couple places in town where everybody goes to to run and ride and like just, you know, it's it's set up for people to do these things. And there's multiple times that I'll be in this area and I'll see people running or riding their bike, or whatever. But but if they're if they're running, <clears throat> excuse me, or walking, occasionally you'll see really poor mechanics. And mm. occasionally I wouldn't even say occasionally, often you'll see poor mechanics, occasionally you see somebody who's doesn't have that contralateral pattern, yeah. they have, a, they have a pattern where it's a lateral, lateral pattern, right? The same yeah. arm forward with the leg and you're like, and if you don't know what you're looking at, you just know it's wrong, but you can't yeah. put your finger on it. Yeah. Um, so I, anybody who's listening, I, I kind of challenge you to look for that because mm. even though it's a very natural, as you say, primal pattern. There's enough dysregulation in our society now, um, mm. with, with the sedentarism and everything else, that you will see people who totally thwart this natural pattern. Yeah, and it's just everyone will look at them and be like, something's not right there. Now you'll be able to look and cut. Kind of it's know like the going.
1: definition of pornography versus fine art. You know, You're like exactly. Yeah, can you tell me what it is? But I know it when I see it. Right. Yes,
2: senator. Um, yes.
1: At this so this is a problem with cycling because it disconnects that natural rhythm of that contralateral movement pattern and that rotation, because the butt's on a saddle. And even when you're standing out of the saddle, cycling is backwards because primarily, if you stand up out of the saddle on a steep climb and you push down with a left leg, you'll pull back with the left arm. Mm-hmm. That's an ipsilateral pattern, the same sided pattern. So it it um, works against that natural programming and that spinal engine, that rotation that we want to have in most other sports. No, I'm not saying other sports are, all better than cycling. You know, you've got sports like baseball where primarily you're swinging only on one side, or tennis. You, yeah. You're swinging bilaterally through tennis, but obviously you got a forehand and a backhand. So people tend to to get wound up, we'll say, on one side more than the other, and that causes its own host of problems. Or even you have someone who works, um, you know, nine hour shifts at a supermarket. What are they doing? They're you know the the conveyor belt for the products that they're scanning is always on one side. So they're only rotating to that one side. So they develop these patterns. This is how these patterns develop. And the other thing I'll say about cycling, just to keep beating up on it for a minute, my favorite sport that I love to, to, to punch, uh, in the gut is this. I actually heard this on a Kelly Starrett podcast with one of the guys who called him out on this. Uh, I studied a bit of Kelly's work and he was talking to his presenter about how he loved mountain biking. He and his wife love mountain biking. And the guy said, well, look, man, you're sitting at a desk all day. And then you want to go exercise. I got bad news for you because you're talking about how sitting is the new smoking. Well, cycling is just more sitting. And yeah, in some ways it certainly is. Right. Right. It is. It's, it's that yeah. hip hinged position. And this is one of the things I see is when I ask someone to do a deadlift or a squat or even a simple, um, I call it a, a supine hip extension back on ball. So that's where you put your, shoulders and neck on a stability ball or a fit ball, and you push your hips up into that tabletop position, right? And then your knees are at a right angle. So your shins are vertical. And I ask people to push their hips all the way up into that tabletop position. Frequently cyclists think they are all all the way neutral, but their hips are still in flexion because we're kind of stuck in hip flexion, meaning you're always, your torso is always coming forward a little bit, right? And
2: anyway, that's a, that's a function of lots of sitting, lots of hip flexion. If you walk around a a grand tour, um, yeah, and catch the, catch riders not in their cycling shoes. If they're in their cycling shoes, they're gonna walk. Kind of, I mean, you, like you walk. Right? Yeah, but say say you're at dinner and there's a buffet. Eighty um, percent or more of them will stand there with flexion in their hips. You know, yeah. rolled shoulders. Like it's it's a very it's a very obvious posture, and it's not all of them. Some have. Mm. Um, very purposefully, I think, address that. Um, you have to be purposeful to offset that, I think. Yeah. yeah. One that comes to mind is it, somebody you work with, Nathan Haas, who mm-hmm. looks he, good posture, looks like an athlete, right? Um, yeah. And I know it's purposeful in his case. So um, yeah, Nathan will give a little this shout is, out for your yeah, posture. Yeah, Nathan. Um, keep it up, buddy. Yeah. So I,
1: I did a podcast recently on upper cross syndrome, right? And this gets to exactly the heart of this point, which is the last swing I'll take it cycling. Um, but upper cross is fundamentally when we have that rounded shoulder posture, right? Our shoulders collapse in towards the center of our chest and our head comes forward. And um, I used to call it Ichabod Crane posture until I actually Googled Ichabod Crane. And then I realized that was completely wrong. I think really what I'm thinking of more is something like Ebenezer Scrooge posture, Right or when your spine starts to look like a human question mark, that's how I describe it. Right? So the head is forward and the shoulders are very rounded and the upper back is slumped forward. And this is a depression of the first rib angle. So your first rib is the rib that's just under your collarbones and there's a natural angle it should have relative to the horizon. And when you reduce that rib angle, it, it, the entire rib cage dumps forward, right? And you get this collapse on the front side of the chest and a lengthening on the back side of your spine. And this is a very unhealthy posture. It's also a posture you can easily adopt when you're at your desk, typing away on your computer all day, or when you're sitting on a park bench, looking at your phone, or when you're riding a bike cycling, um, magnifies the postural syndromes of upper cross. And what I described in that pod is apply the grocery store test, right? So walk around the grocery store and see if you can spot the cyclist and you can't cheat and look at their legs or their t-shirt. That's got a bunch of criterium sponsors on it or whatever. Right. You got to see who you can figure out as a cyclist just from their walking and standing posture and unfortunately cyclists stick out like sore thumbs in this regard. Once you once you yeah. see it, you can't unsee it. So sorry. Um yeah. you know, it's like me asking you not to think about a pink elephant. You can't do it, right? Once I say right. it, it, just appears. So you're going to see up across everywhere if you listen to this pod and, and you're thinking about it the next time you're in the in the line at the store. I'm um, not just in cyclists in a lot
2: of people, yeah. but well, and I think know. the important thing is to see if you see it in yourself and obviously it's harder to see in yourself. Right. But, but the yeah. idea is not that you've got to look in the mirror and all, but do you feel yourself falling into that? And that position is even sometimes glorified within cycling, you know, we'll for a time trial, we, we try to get the shoulders narrow, sometimes even yes. tape them narrow, yes. right? and forward and the head forward and yes. it can be adaptive for a very certain, uh, goal. But that doesn't mean it's a worthwhile posture across the board.
1: Well, right. So, this goes into the concept of um, being aerodynamic on a bike is nothing short of an act of contortionism, straight up. It it just is, right? And, but also the concept that uh, we can make choices that are in alignment with our global health. And we think of this, I think of this as train tracks, right? So, you're on one track and you're making a, a, a choice, whether it's diet or Um, To stretch or do yoga or lift weights or ride a bike or whatever These are choices we make that support our overall health and then on the parallel track We have choices that support our performance in sport right and At times in our lives and where we are depending on how much money we make to ride a bike Right or what our goals are how impending our our season goal is for example, most of the time those choices should ideally be parallel or even convergent. Meaning if you're going to make a choice that's good for your overall health, it also supports your athletic pursuits. Mm -hmm. However, um, if you're making enough money as a world tour level cyclist to support your family and put your kids through college, you can be justified at least in the short term at making some choices that would take those train tracks in a divergent way. Meaning, yeah, I know this isn't the best thing for my overall health, but I'm making 500,000 euros a year, so I'm going to do it. And then I'll deal with the consequences when I'm 35 or 40 and I retire or whatever. And one of those is learning to ride in a time trial position where you're sucking your shoulders up into your earlobes, into your auditory meatus, love that term, otherwise known as your ear hole. And you know, you're, you're basically fostering upper cross syndrome on the bike to be aerodynamic. Uh, the, this part I struggle with is when amateur riders do this for, you know, the love of sport. I have no problem with them doing that during the sport, but I, I also preach or welcome people to learn that the best way for them to guard their holistic health for all the reasons we've been talking about is to include appropriate exercises off the bike to offset those, um, postural, that postural training that you're incurring on the bike or you're putting yourself through on the bike. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would say even at a professional level, um, having those guys do, training that offsets it, you know, in a simple way, I've, I've been a big fan of our riders running in the off season, maybe Absolutely. even during, during the season for some of them, right. When it Absolutely. makes sense, to do that. because yeah. it goes back to that idea. You're getting some rotational, um, mm-hmm. movement. You're strengthening the foot, like yeah. all the things that cycling weekends, running can serve to improve. And that's the same for any sport. Like you were pointing out, you, you look at the limitations of the sport, and then you look at how you can mitigate those by Im- improving the the overall mechanics of the athlete and you make a better athlete you make a more yeah. resilient athlete you make yes. a higher performing athlete and so uh, you know i kind of wonder and this is getting way off topic but you start to see some of the guys that are really excelling in cycling right now um who come from a, a cyclocross background or background outside of cycling mm-hmm. that is non-traditional for for world tour rider Mm -hmm. um a lot of them are a little a little beefier than the the traditional grand tour rider which isn't saying much right um right but they've got some muscle tone they've got some upper body muscle they carry Mm -hmm. um and they're just part of their success is not just their one-time performance it's the resilience to be able to come back and do it over and over and over again and i think i don't know for sure because everybody's individual, but I, I I would suspect that this plays a decent role in that success.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, look at our, our poster child for that has got to be Mike Woods, right? Mm -hmm. He came from a running background. He was a very successful runner. Um, if I remember correctly, ran a sub four minute mile at one point, which is pretty elite. Right. Uh, and then jumped onto the world tour at a pretty late age, uh, by world tour standards. I think he was 27 or 28 when he got his first contract, if I'm not mistaken. and he's had, you know, tremendous success at that level. But I, I read, um, I think it was an Instagram post from him not too long ago. And he was talking about running and he had a photo of him running through some muddy collegiate race uh, a million years ago. And he said, I, you know, I'm missing running right now. The last run I got out for was on my rest day during one of the grand tours he had done. I think it might've been the Giro. I can't, I, I don't recall which one it was, but there's a great example of someone who's actually living what you're talking about. Um, he's he's running on his rest day during Grand Tour to bring his body into better balance. He goes out for a yeah. run. And yeah. I mean, this is unheard of in some circles of cycling even today. And I'm quite certain that there were soigneurs and mechanics and directors who saw him leave the hotel and went, What is wrong with this guy? You know, they're still of that belief. Cause there's definitely a a very old school belief that running is the antithesis of cycling and that it'll ruin your legs and you you stay off your feet at all costs. And, and I understand that line of thought, but I would approach it from a different lens. And that's one of bringing the body into balance, which kind of brings us back to our conversation about the directive of, or the philosophy of, of medicine and bike fit, you know, when you're stepping out of the way and allowing healing to happen, really what we're trying to do is bring the body to a level of homeostasis, right? We're trying to find, let the body find balance because it wants to
0: find balance.
2: Yeah. Right. Let me, let me follow that line, but switch a little bit, talking about injury um, or mm-hmm. working with someone who's injured. So if somebody comes in to, for a bike fit and they're coming in with an injury that they want to address, mitigate, be more comfortable on the bike um, versus someone who comes in and says, I just want to be fast. I ride 15 yep. hours a week how how do you navigate those as a fitter because as we've mm-hmm. kind of talked about there's a lot of overlap here on kind of you know the the biomechanics of addressing the biomechanics of an injured person versus someone looking to perform better um but sometimes the goals are slightly different i'm just curious yep. psychologically or from the framework you use is there a difference in how you address them or is it fairly mm-hmm. similar
1: yeah there's a difference because you know, ultimately if someone comes to me with an injury, um, you want you want to move the dial and help them. Uh, so the, it, that's sort of the rate limiting factor that's where everything's funneled to. So you have to address that issue and really work towards trying to fact find and figure out what tools you can offer them to help them with that injury. The tricky part comes in <clears throat> kind of navigating the client's belief system about what bike fit is for. Uh, a lot of times if someone comes in for example with a knee problem, or low back pain. And what they are imagining sometimes is that you're going to tweak their bike fit, and then that pain will vanish. Um, Meaning that the cause of the pain, the etiology of the pain is the saddle's too high, the saddle's too low, the cleat position's off, that's causing knee pain. And that's certainly possible. Uh, But it's less common than people probably think. Agreed. So this is where, for me, I don't, only bike fit, I educate the client because my objective, really, I'm not a bike fitter. I'm an educator, to be honest, I'm a teacher. Uh, bike fitting is just part of what I do. <clears throat> and so I always prefer to hand someone a fishing pole rather than a plate of salmon. And I'm happy to share a meal with someone. But for me, there's much more gratification in empowering clients to help solve their own problems and dig deeper, right? Giving them the tools. So if someone's injured, the conversation becomes, okay, how much of this is a result of the bike fit and how much of this is a result of other factors that play a role right your fascial tension that you have that isn't only a result of riding but it's a result of movement patterns that you have globally off the bike you know sitting patterns walking patterns uh you drive two hours a day to and from your job in your car for example these types of things can contribute uh even more broadly speaking things like diet right if people are consuming diet that is Challenging their system and they've got leaky gut syndrome. Then they've got a level of a baseline level of inflammation. So yes while uh, Maybe it was the 112 mile bike ride that caused their knee to first hurt What is it that tipped their system out of balance to the point where they couldn't handle the load of that 112 mile bike ride? Was it that they weren't conditioned properly for the ride and their training? Load went too high as a result of that ride Or their their global load Or is it also, uh, or is a contributing factor that the diet's been so poor or their sleep habits are really poor and they're not healing. They're not able to handle the training load they're putting themselves under. So very quickly, my conversation can go to a very broad scope and then we have to bring it back and narrow it down and say, all right, how do we help you on the day? And then my job is to assess, okay, is your cleat position actually contributing to this knee injury or not? And is your saddle height contributing to this knee injury or not? Uh, Do we need to change your foot pedal interface, right? With wedging your footbeds or things like that. And as I go down the fitting road, you know, wedging and footbeds are are kind of an area of focus for some people in the world of bike fitting right now. I do less and less work in that area and more education about building a strong, stable foot, about transitioning to some barefoot activities and ways to strengthen and condition the ankle and foot so that we can move away from less prosthetic devices, arches and footbeds.
2: Do you ever use things like that? So I used to do some bike fitting. Um, I don't do it anymore. Uh, really enjoyed it. And one of the things I would do with patients is I would use things like that where I have the same mentality. I don't want somebody just shimmed until they're comfortable. You know, I don't want someone, just finding a place that is going to meet them where they are until they develop more weakness. And we've got to shim further and further and further. I would actually look at it almost like a splint. So I would use those things with the idea that it was a temporary way to address something while they did something off the bike. And then we would remove them. Maybe even in, right. Is, Is that, would you agree with that? Or am I wrong in my thinking there?
1: Um, I would agree it could be useful in certain situations. The hard part is interpreting, you know, when you want to, to use that temporary measure to help bring a client into balance, right. Or restore their, their, um, their function on the bike and what the timeline is on, because presumably with that prescription or that recommendation, sorry, I don't diagnose or prescribe, um, (laughs) with that recommendation, you would, um, also be giving them a series of off the bike exercises or some sort yeah. of movement plan off the bike to help them restore that balance. Cause you can't just put a wedge under the foot for a period of time and say, we're going to use this for six weeks and then we're taking it out and not change anything else. We've got to improve their function somehow. So we've got to give them, you know, some drills to improve the strength of foot. A great example just quickly would be the MOBO board, right? To help oh, them no. act- yeah. activate that short foot, right? If you haven't, if you this morning. morning, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So if you're unfamiliar, check out the MOBO board. That's M as in mother O-B-O. I've got one in my studio. Um, you were involved in the in the creation of that product, right, Kevin?
2: No, no, no. But I, I do know, and we've had Jay Deshari, the guy who did create it. Uh, okay. He's on the podcast. He's uh, on the podcast. Okay.
1: Yep. Yeah. Great tool. I, I love to just put people on it just to watch their faces when you change the axis of rotation and they go, oh, wow, I'm terrible at this one. And I'm pretty good at this one. Yeah. Great. So what does that tell us, right? Always information. Put that in your pocket. But- I, so I think it could be useful to give someone those sort of temporary measures to get them into balance. But the other part of that is you have to have an ongoing treatment plan with your client or ongoing, a plan to see them on a regular basis. And that's not always possible for me because I have people fly in from out of state quite frequently. So then, you know, of course I can follow up on zoom or do that kind of thing virtually. That's possible. It gets a little tricky to manage that. Uh, That's the challenge for me. So, unfortunately, I find that there are probably instances where I might want to um, make that recommendation, but having it be actionable can be challenging in my model. Right.
2: Um, well, and and with <coughs> it's, it's patient dependent as well or client dependent, um, of course. Because that's yeah, some people will follow those recommendations. Others, you, others, um, you put them in a position of comfort with a recommendation that you change what they do. And they don't do it and it just exacerbates the problem down the road. And mm-hmm. sometimes you, if you know somebody well enough, you can kind of figure out who's going to fall into which category, yeah. especially if you've worked with them for a while. Yeah. Um, and then it, it it would make a lot of sense not to give them uh, the the quick fix or the quick, the splint, so to speak, yeah. unless they have a major event coming up or something like that. But, you know, it, it's much more beneficial to say, Hey, this is a process and here's where we start the process, right? There's no shortcut. Like, yes, now we're off to the, off to the races on this.
1: That's a great point. And, you know, really the, the longer I practice bike fitting, um, the more I realize practice being a key word there, just as you know, Mm -hmm. doctors have a practice as well. Right. It's like you go to school, you learn all the book stuff and then you practice it. That's where the real learning happens. Right. For sure. Uh, so the longer I have my my bike fit practice, the more I recognize that, um, or the more I try to impart this lesson to my clients, really, I'll say, is that bike fitting isn't, there's a perception that it's a one and done. Like, I went and I got my bike fit, and this is my saddle height, and this is my saddle offset, and these, this is my cleat wedging arrangement. But we have to remember, to go again back to one more concept, to, to the same concept, the body's always trying to achieve homeostasis. And you are not the same athlete 12 months from now that you were 28 months ago, because this winter you lifted more weight, but then you got the flu and that knocked you out for three weeks. And then you also decided to do more yoga because your wife wanted to do yoga and you guys decided to do it together, or you didn't do yoga because you decided you hated it or whatever. And your body's responding to these loads. So the system, the, the, the body and the psyche and the emotions all are a result of your life experience. This river we're floating down and it's adapting to those experiences, how many rocks you bump into and how many waterfalls you go over versus how many calm ponds you get to swim in. And that means that bike fitting is an ongoing process. Am I suggesting that everyone get a bike fit every six weeks? No, definitely not. But I also, I think that we need to start to educate clients to leave behind the concept that I've done my bike fit and that's it and now I can go ride my bike for six years and everything will be the same. It's the same mentality as well, two years ago, I won this race and I felt amazing. And now I'm struggling with my form. So I'm going to go back and look at my training logs from two years ago and just replicate the last 12 weeks going into this race. And then I'll win again. It's a sure thing, right? Right. This is, um, this is thinking. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up because this is something that I've run into repeatedly through the years is, is somebody who, you know, maybe, uh, maybe has an, an injury they've been dealing with, right. A, a, a niggle, as we say, you know, something that's mm-hmm. just not totally keeping them off the bike, but it's, it's bothersome and it has been for a while. And I'll ask, you know, have you ever had a bike fit? Oh yeah, I had a bike fit. I had a bike fit, you know, six years and six years ago and whatever. And this, but this has been bothering me only for the last two. Right. And in their mind, it's like, okay, you know, it can't be the bike fit that was done, set and done. And like this, this evolved since then. So it's not related. Um, but it comes up all the time even with pros where it's like yeah. okay what have you done in the last six years that might have changed the the specifics of that fit and it's yep. such a dynamic process yep. uh, can I uh, I want to ask you a few kind of specific bike fit questions not so much like what's the saddle height what's this but I, I was wondering if we could kind of hit the contact points of the bike mm-hmm. and get some of your overarching Philosophical thoughts on uh, ways to address those as a fitter. So, uh, for contact points, we've got you know we've got the handlebars or where, whatever you're holding on to at the front. Yep. Yep. You know, you've got whatever your butts on. And you've got whatever yep. your, your feet are on, right? And so, could you walk through the those three contact points and just high level? What are some what are some thoughts that you have? Again, philosophically on you know, uh, stem height and, you know, where do you hmm. put the bars? Where do you put the saddle? How do these work together? Um, just kind of a, sure. You no, know, you know, it's, I know it's grossly limiting it to say this, but just kind of a five minute, uh, uh you know, over, overview of these things. Sure. Five minutes. All right. Well, take what you want, but, I'm- <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So let's start with, uh, shoes and pedals. That's a good point. Do you, when you're looking, do you start with shoes and pedals? Not necessarily. I
1: I I look at the rider, I get them on the bike, I do all my off-the-bike stuff, I put them on the bike and I kind of look at them with a soft focus. And I sort of um I'm making a spiral with my finger. I start at the edge of the spiral and I work my way inward. And the edge of the spiral is determined by just what I see or feel needs the most attention first. Okay. Whatever that is. So I don't have a specific checklist. I'm starting with feet, I'm starting with saddle height. I just look and say, ooh, what is the rate limiting factor here? And it could be the rider's stance width, it could be that they're not, sit, they're not rotating the pelvis uh, forward enough because the saddle is in the wrong place. It could be the reach is disastrously off. And the reason I do it that way is because as I mentioned earlier, when you change one thing in bike fit, you kind of impact everything. So I start with the biggest rate limiting factor first or the biggest um, thing that grabs my attention first, solve that, see how it changes everything else, solve the next thing, refine, see how it changes everything else. And then you get several steps down that process. Then you zoom back out and look again and go, okay, and we've made several changes we're potentially quite far off from where we started what is the global assessment of how things are happening soft focus right yeah. uh just like you're riding a criterion, you you zoom out you you see you look at nothing but see everything
2: right yeah yeah
1: um so which is another way to go from left brain to right brain really is what it comes down to sure so with feet and pedals um, overarching principles, well, one, I find that I have a high degree of people who complain of foot pain. And most of the time it's because the feet are too narrow in the forefoot, the shoes are too narrow in the forefoot for their yeah. feet.
2: And crank down like tighten really they, tight. yeah.
1: And, and that is also related to if someone has poor ankle strength and stability and poor core strength, then their foot is moving in the shoe, these micro movements on every pedal stroke, and they over tighten the shoes. And then they get circulation problems. So if you're over tightening your shoes, it can be a symptom of another, um, problem, but could also just be that your, your shoe fit sucks. Uh, so that's a thing. Generally speaking, I really, I try to educate people about having strong, well conditioned feet and ankles, and I'm always thinking about using the foot as a tripod, right? So that's the first fifth and calcaneus or another way to do it is look at the sole of your foot and put your fingers under the base of the big toe, the ball of the foot, right? The base of the the pinky toe and then the center of the heel. That triangle should be like a tripod with even weight distribution on all three of those points. And most people when they stand they do not have even distribution of that of that um those three points. So when you train the foot to be able to distribute load like that when you're pushing down, then you can help eliminate hot spots and you've got a stable ankle. So that's how I think about it. I also prefer shoes that have a very forgiving upper in general. Um, this allows the upper to conform to the, the bio-individuality of your foot, meaning all the little bony prominences you have. I've got little uh, fifth metatarsals that stick up like crazy. They're like little dragon wings on on the edge of my feet. And if I have a shoe that's too tight there, it just drives me insane. So I do I do whatever is necessary for the client or myself to make the shoe comfortable, especially if you have a localized pressure point like that. We do not want your foot to mold to your shoe, right? Um, likewise, we don't want the body to mold to the bike. This is old school cycling thinking. It used to be such a tough guy or gal sport. <clears throat> January 1st, you go out in the winter and you just hammer yourself into oblivion with those you know, kilometers and kilometers to get your butt to mold to the shape of the seat mm-hmm. and your feet to deal with the f- shoes. And this is old school thinking. No matter how tough you are and how committed you are to your sport, everyone has a finite capacity to endure pain and discomfort. So one of the advancements we've made in bike fitting is we acknowledge that and we say, okay, we're going to make the bike comfortable for the rider so that they can partition more of their ability to deal with discomfort towards their event, towards going fast, towards doing intervals and going long. And that we used to not separate those two concepts and they're very basic. And when you think about it, it's like, well, that makes sense. But it used to be like, oh, you know, your, your junk's falling asleep. Your shoulders are sore. You know, your neck's sore. Your back hurts. Oh, that's just part of you being soft. Go train more. So I'm glad we figured that out. Um, so feet, feet is one of those areas. A lot of people, it's surprising to me how many riders come in and endure massive amounts of discomfort in their feet. And that tells me your shoes are probably a half a size, maybe a size too small, or you're over-tightening them, or they're just a really bad fit for your feet. So go to a shop, try in as many pairs as you can. You want a nice snug heel cup and enough room in the forefoot for your metatarsals to be unimpeded, ideally. A great way to figure out if your feet are not a good fit for your current shoes, take out your existing footbed or insole, put it on the ground, put your foot on top and just feel for overhang. If your toes and your, your metatarsals, which are the toe knuckles are hanging over the sides of that footbed by more than three or four mils on each side, that means the upper is squashing the metatarsals and causing probably pain and discomfort and all kinds of things. And you don't notice it in the first five or 10 minutes of your ride. You put on your shoes, you go. But after an hour or two, especially in the heat, all of a sudden things hurt.
2: Yeah. So that, that's a really great and simple way. I've never thought of doing that. Just take the, take the insert yeah. out and it look. Just put your foot on it and, and look yeah. and see. And it's
1: Love. surprising people go, oh, wow. They, when I do that with them in the fit studio, it's like, wow, this isn't even close to you. You need a wide shoe or an extra wide and yeah. good news in the world of bike fitting. Now we have more companies that offer wide shoes. And a surprising number of people need wide shoes. And a wide shoe usually means it's wider in the forefoot, but not in the heel. So you still get a good heel cup. Right. Um, yeah. Shimano, Specialized, Lake, they all offer wide shoes now. There are probably a few others. But Lake is great. They offer wide and extra wide. So if you have been suffering from foot pain forever, check out Lake's website just to plug there. It's a great resource. They also have leather uppers, which again is more conforming. Physique has some interesting upper materials now that are more conforming. Not the biggest fan of physique shoes because they still are kind of in the old school line of a lot of toe spring and heel rise. So I prefer a, a shoe that's closer to flat. Why? Because it's closer to walking on the earth, and this is what we are meant to do is run and walk on the earth, which is a relatively flat surface. Yeah. So we want less toe spring and less heel rise. Toe spring is like a Dutch clog, right? It's your toes are coming up toward your nose. Yeah. Um, and really what that's doing is locking the foot in a pattern of, of um supination. And if we think about the spinal rotation, walking and running pronation is deceleration, supination is acceleration. But what do we do during walking running? We decelerate and accelerate on every stroke. So when you, uh, every foot stride, when you lock the foot in supination, you're limiting pronation. This is how most cyclists ride most of the time. To- anyway, big topic. I won't, I won't derail us any further, but it's so, um, As far as pedals go, I prefer pedals with float. Mm -hmm. Um, most, the only riders who are an exception to that rule are, if you're making your living, riding your bike and you're a sprinter, then you might be justified in using a pedal with no float at the heel, right? Uh, because when you're out of the saddle and the bike is leaning, you can get an increase in power. In my experience from driving through the top of the pedal stroke with the external hip rotators, basically. You're adding a bit more capacity to recruit more muscles in the chain. But for anyone else, not a sprinter and not making a living around your bike, you are far better off letting the feet have some float in the heels. So that's the yellow or blue cleats in Shimano. They don't have as much as I'd like, but they've got some. Um, The Wahoo pedal system allows a great amount of float. It's got other little niggles to deal with, but it's a good system overall. From a bike fitting perspective, I think it's still the best system out there. Um, a few other pedals have some float as well. So, but generally speaking, people ask me all the time, should I float my pedals? And the answer for the vast
2: majority of people is yes. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Because for the vast majority of people, the, the small potential benefit of being locked in is far outweighed by the risk. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep.
1: yep. Um, and then, uh, while we're on that contact point, I'll just say, I'll just say two sentences on crank length. The vast majority of people are served by going shorter with cranks rather than longer. The only people who are really justified in pushing the envelope on crank lengths are again, world tour level riders. If you're making a living around your bike and you're a climber and in particular, you specialize on steep climbs because at that moment, when you're going as hard as you can out of the saddle and you have no more gears, then that long lever length helps you. It only helps you. But in almost every other situation, it penalizes you in ways that are um, more than you might think. And there's a lot of research on this. Uh, so if you want to search crank arm length, you'll find that people, people, the old school line of thought is that longer equals more leverage equals more power. And that's basically a second grade way to look at what's a PhD level problem. And when you look at all the data and all the outcomes, most people are better off with shorter cranks.
2: So, yeah. Yeah. It's those low cadence, high torque situations where, where that lever arm comes into play, but the rest of the time, you're not spinning it at a, at a max torque for your body regardless so you don't you don't need that lever arm the right. downside work uh the downside is the work necessary to move it um yeah. which can just create all sorts of of issues both physiologically and mechanically yes yeah. exactly yeah good point I'm glad you brought that yeah. up
1: um moving on to saddles i would say we've also made huge steps forward in saddle technology in the last several years um, the advent of saddles with a cutout that allows for relief of perineal pressure is massive. So really you're changing the paradigm of supporting the body weight on the perineum, which is soft tissue. doesn't matter if you're a guy or a gal, same problem. Only women, I would argue are ice skating uphill a little more than men in terms of finding a good fit for a bicycle. Sorry, ladies. It's just, uh, it's really challenging. Um, so we've, we've taken away the the support of the torso on the perineum, which is the soft tissue in between the ischium which is the lower, the lower bony part of the pelvis. And we moved it to supporting the weight of the torso on, on the pelvis basically by the pelvis. Right. And that's massive. Um, there's a little adaptation curve there. If the nerves are not used to that pressure, there are a couple rides where things get a little like, hmm, I don't know if I like this. And usually it goes away. If it's a good saddle fit, it goes away. I also prefer a saddle with some curve to it. So when viewed from the side, it's shaped more like a hammock rather than a flat saddle. And this is because the ischium have some curve to them. So I think of the ischium as being like, kind of like rocking chair feet, right? They're wide in the back and a little narrower in the front and they're curved. And when you put a rocking chair on a hardwood floor, what do you get? The ability to rock back and forth. Now this is one of um, the 99 Italian wives tales about bike fitting that need to be assassinated which is that we want to, and should move forward and aft on the saddle and be on the ribbit air quotes on the, on the flats and push back on the climbs, or sometimes people even do it the opposite way. They move forward on a climb. This tells me that you're probably quad dominant and your saddle is not in the right place. If I really distill, uh, down to the fundamentals, but you never know until you see the individual, right? So. I prefer a curved saddle that supports the ischium. What we're doing is we're effectively curving the hardwood floor up to meet the chair and give more support over a broader base. This is why a curved saddle tends to work in my experience. The downside of a curved saddle is it has to be put in exactly the right place. The saddle height, offset, and nose angle all have to be dialed because you're supporting the bones. And when it's in the right place, it can disappear under you. Um, and that's a new word for a lot of cyclists in my experience. They go, I never, I I don't even know that could be a thing, but I've had overwhelming success, especially with male cyclists, but some females as well, where we get the right saddle with the right cutout and the right curve under them. And we get it at the right angle and in the right place. And they go, I never knew I could be this comfortable on a bike. Thank you so much. And that's a huge victory moment that happens because I want my clients to enjoy riding their bikes. Yeah. Um, so if you're on a saddle that doesn't have a cutout. Consider moving to a cutout. If you're on a flat saddle, try a curved saddle. Um, saddles are tricky because they're they tend to be expensive and time consuming, and the consumer gets lost. It's like, well, what do I do with my saddle height? Where do I put the new one? Um, I don't want to buy it for three hundred dollars or two hundred dollars and then ride it for five minutes and realize it sucked. So go to a shop with a trial program and try as many saddles as you can. Same rule as with the feet, with the shoes. Try as many pairs of shoes on as you can and see what works for you. Back to back comparison is the best way to figure out what your um rocket fuel is. Remember, this is true for diet, shoes, saddles, everything in life. One person's rocket fuel is another person's kryptonite. Hmm. So one person goes really well on spinach and rice, another person goes well on steak and potatoes, right? Same same thing for saddle.
2: Yeah. So, Which is why it yeah. becomes such a uh a, an argumentative conversation oftentimes between people.
1: Well right.
2: you're both right. It works you're for both you. right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a flaw in logic, right? Um, there's a rule it's called an instantial generalization, which is I ate steak and I want a bike race. Therefore all humans should eat steak and they will all perform to their best. And this is an error in logic. What works like bio individuality rules, everything, right? I mean, the only thing I learned from Steve Hogg in three and a half weeks of training from literally the only thing was there are no rules in bike fitting. That's the only rule meaning everyone is an individual, right? And I'm sure you see this over and over again. I mean, the more you study anatomy, you find out how fascinating the differences are in between one human and another. I mean, people are born with extra bones and you know random missing ligaments. Some people have more muscles than others. Like we don't realize how much individually there is individuality there is in a hundred humans. It's incredible. It's I mean,
2: huge. And the role of your research and published studies is to really define the bell curve. It doesn't define where your next client or patient falls on the bell curve. It's Thank useful. you so much for saying that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's useful because it gives us some parameters and some understanding as to what's going on, but yes. it is not a one-to-one correlation where you can take the results of something that's published and apply it to the next person that walks through the door. Um, and, and it's, no. you know, even that is more fine tuned than saying, well, this worked for me, therefore everyone must do it. Um, but it's the same, it's the same fallacy just on a, a more polished level.
1: Yeah. A science-y level. I thank you so much for saying that. I think that's one of the biggest problems with scientific studies is people don't, they look at the bell curve and they assume they're in the middle of that bell curve. That data is only relevant when you compare it to how your own experience is. And so when people, um, this is a problem, I think philosophically in our society today is that they, they bow down to the altar of science, partially perhaps because they don't want to take responsibility for knowing themselves. But ultimately, you are the expert in your own body. So what does science do? It tells us what the lay of the land is. It gives us the bell curve. And then your job is to go and say, okay, the bell curve says that beta alanine is good for recycling. Now I have to go out and find out if it is good for me or nitric oxide or whatever, right? To use supplements is an easy example. Now I'm going to go try it and see, does creatine make me feel like crap or does it make me feel amazing and give me increased power? If so, for how long, how many grams? how many months in a row should I take it? The questions never end, but we want societally, I'll say we want the quick answer, which is I'm going to read a paper or I want to read an article in outside magazine. It tells me whether or not to consume creatine. The answer is yes or no. Will it be better or not? The answer is yes. I'm going to go take it. And that's not the way this works. (laughs) Unfortunately. Uh,
2: Well, and and to give outside some credit, if, if Alex Hutchinson wrote it, um, Is probably really well described as to you know the the idiosyncrasies and, and the nuances of it. Agreed. Uh, so not Agreed. not under the bus there. Uh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Great point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we got a little off there. Do we want to
1: circle back on handlebars, or are we out of time? Yeah. Tell, tell me.
2: Tell, let, let's go through handlebars. Um, okay. I've got one more question for you, and we'll wrap up. Okay. Great. So,
1: um, as far as handlebars go, you know. We can we'll sort of narrow it down to road and or gravel because that's probably the majority of the listeners I would guess. Yeah. Uh, mountain bike handlebars are a different ball of wax, and track is you know tracks track. <laughs> so <Yeah. clears throat> everybody's riding thirty three centimeter wide handlebars on the track right now, so does not apply because <laughs> wow. they all assume that they're going to be more aero, which which actually is part of the conversation, right? A lot of fitters will take the distance between the AC joint, or you can think of that as your shoulder width measurement. And they'll use that to make a handlebar width recommendation. And there are worse things you could do as a starting point, but we have to consider that if someone has an extreme case of upper cross syndrome and their shoulders are pronated and rolled forward towards their chest, and we recommend a bar width based on that position, that postural position, really what we're going to do is um foster an increased adaptation in that position because now they've got upper cross while they're sitting at their desk and their shoulders are rolled in towards their center line. And now we're going to ask him to ride that way on the bike all the time. It's So, right. Yeah. It's going to exacerbate the problem. So again, it comes back to me, education. I look at the client, I look at their posture and standing. I look at their posture on the bike. We look if their shoulders are really protracting or are rolling forward while they're in that cycling position, which is quite common. Even people are unconscious of it until I show them on a video. You know, I just use my iPad and put a ruler between the center of the hip and the ear And then we look at how far down the shoulders are dropped. It's very simple. The simple tools are the ones I find most effective, right? And I show them, okay, you're really pronated in this position. So we're going to talk, we're going to have a conversation about how to restore balance or health to your shoulders so that if you do fall off your bike, you're less likely to break a collarbone. So when you do sprint out of the saddle, you're, you're better at producing force on the bars to offset the force you're driving at the pedals. Um, And just so you. Uh, have a, a healthier posture overall, right? A little better breathing mechanics um, are some of the benefits of improving that shoulder posture potentially. And so there's no hard rule as far as a bar width, but I will say one guideline I use is I find most people, you could think about it as parallel or, or narrower than parallel or wider than parallel, meaning assuming that we use the AC joint distance or your shoulder width as some sort of guideline, parallel would mean the arms are you know, as described parallel when we're in the hoods, right? So meaning they stay the same width apart the whole way down. I would find that for road, this would be the minimum bar width I would recommend. I prefer not to have people narrower than that for a variety of reasons. And that's not the trend right now at the world tour level. People are also going with narrower bars. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but I prefer to have people parallel or slightly wider than parallel. And basically The big picture for me in fitting is always to balance the physiology of the rider, how they present to me at this moment versus the demands of their event. And if we consider an event like gravel, we have more, uh, low and medium speed cornering over loose, rocky, unpredictable terrain. So we want a little wider base of stability in the handlebars to be able to handle that wider, that wider, um, that wider handlebar stance, either in the hoods or the drops will help the rider be more stable as they go through those corners and gravel you could think about it as somewhere between road and mountain and what's happened in mountain bikes in the last several years bars have gotten a lot wider and the stem's gotten a lot shorter why because the wider bar gives you a longer lever so it's easier to keep the the wheel from flipping under you flicking out how do most Mm -hmm. people go down on mountain bikes they go over rock garden the wheel goes sideways and they go ass over tea kettle right um And so the wider the bar is and the shorter the stem is, the better the the mechanical advantage on that front wheel is. And that also was a result of wider tires and bigger diameter wheels gives the wheel more leverage. So we had to offset that with a wider bar. So when we go on a gravel bike and we're getting wider tires and gravel bikes, most people are riding 38s or 40s or 42s. We need somewhere in between. So I want the, the width of the bars to put you at least a little past parallel, meaning the hands are wider than the shoulders, at least a little bit. And I find that just helps widen that base of support to give people a little more stability when the wheel does go in that deep sand or that kitty litter and it wiggles a little bit, the wider those bars are, the, the more likely you are to stay in one, one place. Um, the assumption people make when they go narrower is that it will improve their aerodynamics. But in my experience, the vast majority of people are making an assumption and you know what they say about assume, yeah, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> And so when we bring the hands narrower, does that change your shoulder mechanics somehow? Does it actually prevent you from turtling your shoulders effectively if aerodynamics are your goal? It might be that you can pull your shoulder in narrower towards the ear with a slightly wider hand posture. It depends a little bit on how strong your traps are, how tight the, the muscles around the shoulder complex are for you, or how functional they are, right? What's your range of, of mobility in your shoulder? How does it work? So without actually going out and testing someone in a 38 and a 40 versus a 42, we don't really know if they're getting more arrow when they go to that 38, I think most people just assume that they are faster. Yeah. Then second question is what does it do your breathing mechanics and your posture and your stability, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's quite, complicated.
2: I don't know. We may have talked about this in the past, but only a few times have I done this, but, um, put someone in different positions, uh, Looking at their aerodynamics, their, their performance characteristics of their fit, and then put them at a, a given load on a trainer and yeah. look at tape measurements and see what the cost is because you may be right. giving up some physiologic uh, performance for the sake of aerodynamic performance. Uh, and everybody's kind of familiar with that concept. At a certain point, you can look really good on a bike, but you can't yep. push it, right? You can't right. you can't go anywhere. Right. Um, do you ever do any kind of measuring in, in that regard?
1: I don't. Um, and here's why. There's several big black holes in that equation for me that I can't get my head wrapped around. So right.
2: And I would agree minutes, it's not perfect. That's why. I yes, done
1: it yeah. It's definitely not perfect. So, okay, one is we're, what we're measuring is uh, let's take lactate and CDA as hard values, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say a rider comes in with a given road position or let's use time trial. That's an easy example. They come in with a given TT t- position and the bars are so high, uh, X high. And then we say, okay, well, we think you're going to be a little faster if we lower your bars, or maybe we narrow your arm pads, right? That's a common one too, make it a little narrower, but we don't know. So let's assume for a moment that we have access to arrow data that can var- validate this. Now that's a big h- ball of wax or data hole. Um, you've either got to go to a wind tunnel. Or you've got to have one of these, there are a few devices you can mount on your handlebars now that measure live CDA, but they are all a astronomical pain to use. I've played with them a bit and they're not easy. They're not user-friendly. It's a complex little device. Or you can do like ERO testing on the Velodrome, right? And that's, that's not a bad solution. You, you just go do laps and they put a device called a WASP on and they look at live data and they figure out. So we can now compare the narrow um, arm cut position versus the wide and we have some CDA data and we say, okay, The narrow one is actually faster, um, and it's faster by this amount. Cool. Now we're going to put you on the trainer, and we're going to look at your lactate values. Well, here's the problem I have with that is if the rider's been riding for three years with a wider arm cut pattern, and now we put them in the narrower cut pattern, we might see, uh, we would expect to see a little bit higher lactate values because they're not adapted to that position. So now you're looking into your crystal ball and asking, what type of adaptation curve do we have? Is it only a minor bump in lactate or is it quite significant or uh, a better example in that case would be lowering the bars because you can see either you know power goes down or lactate goes up or power to heart rate relationship changes Mm -hmm. but there's we're not answering the question of adaptation right if i asked the athlete to train in that position for three months or six months would their lactate levels eventually settle to where they were in the previous position in which case we'd met a net gain or but they just sort of constantly run into this barrier where they just cannot make the same amount of power in that lower position. And the only way to know that is it, by having them go through that trial. Um, and then like everything, you know, we pull on one thing and it affects everything. Well, I wouldn't just tell them to go ride their TT bike. I would also say, okay, in my movement screen, I see that you are very limited in these uh, these range of motion aspects of these joints, right? Your hips are really locked up. Your hamstrings are super tight. So I'm also going to give you a program of myofascial release with foam rolling and some stretching and an LDOA program, which is a different type of stretching, right? So we're going to give you all that stuff. And then we're going to send you out in your low bars and you're going to do intervals for three months. And then we're going to come back, going to check your CDA to make sure that, you know, we're on target. We've got our baseline. And then we're also going to check your lactate levels in the lab and, or your power to hurry ratio, however you want to put it. Mm And even then we don't know that we made any gains on that it could just be that they trained in that position for three months and they're still encountering difficulties but they just got fitter right yeah so there's so many variables that go into the equation it's really impossible to say what moved the dial now ultimately the job is to move the dial to get you know lower cda and better power but it's it there's so many factors that go into that and again you know if i live next to a wind tunnel or next to a velodrome that was indoor and had ERO testing, I would, I would take advantage of that resource, but these are not things I have ready access to. So I'm forced to, as a bike fitter, use what I call my eyeball wind tunnel, which is basically me going, okay, most people are faster. If we do this, most riders are faster. If we do that, most people are slower. If we do this, so we're going to put you this way and that way, and then we send you out the door. And sometimes I have people who then can go to a wind tunnel, confirm the changes we make and. Most of the time I've had people come back and say, oh, your eye is a pretty good wind tunnel, but I'm basically bell curving it and fluid dynamics, just like everything are really complicated. It's not just the height of the bars and the width of the pads. It's the shape of someone's butt. How does the wind come off the helmet and into the shoulders? You know, what's the curve of their, of their thoracic spine and how does that relate to the shape of the helmet? That's why people ask me all the time. What's the fastest helmet? We have no idea until you go test that helmet for you. Yeah. Right.
2: Which is what we have to do with the EF guys, too. I mean, when they go to a wind tunnel, they're taking exactly. multiple pieces of equipment, yep. um, you know, bike equipment, kit, everything. And they may all do the same test, come out with totally different, uh, you know, prescriptions for what they should wear for the next TT. It's, it's so individual. Yeah. Yeah. And hard to even put your finger on the reason why it came out that way, right? Like, yeah. it's, there's, like you said, it's so multifactorial that I mean, you can, you can infer some things and guess, but at the end of the day, you just look at the data and, and in a wind tunnel setting and say, ah, it was faster. Like this sometimes, is, this is sometimes
1: what- you get those head scratcher moments where you're like, you test one helmet and then you test it again later and you get a different result. And you're like, what, what happened here? You know, is the rider tired? Is their posture changing? Yeah. Um, or it's- yeah, or you get unexpected results. So then you're like, well, now what now we got to try to repeat it. but. Wind tunnels have their place because they're so controlled, but in most instances, riders are not making very much power in the wind tunnel. I know there are a few that where you can actually drive with force, but, you know, a lot of things change when you put a rider under power. So
2: there's that. And there's fatigue. Yeah. There's fatigue. Yeah. 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 Well, Colby, I really appreciate it. I've kept you longer than I said I would, Um, but uh, it's been a great conversation and I, I really enjoyed the time and enjoyed your expertise and uh and experience in this wide-ranging realm and i thank you for joining us because it was a good time
1: yeah thank you kevin it was a great conversation i really enjoyed it and uh i'm looking forward to getting whacked with that dunning kruger paddle again you know yeah. for all it, the things s- i know
2: there's some of- i don't right yeah i agree cool koi yeah. thank you thanks kevin
0: Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading, some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it, was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods and that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge understanding and while i think i'm reasonably smart and i know quite a bit of stuff i want to make it clear that the opinions that i share on this podcast are belief systems built on what i've experienced to this point and some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests, is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about and while sport is training for life it's nothing to get too upset over the purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth their intent and their coherence that's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.